I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast. If you appreciate Cato's research and analysis, I'd like to ask you to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance the ideals of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. If you support our mission by becoming a new Cato Podcast sponsor or renew your sponsorship with an increased gift, one generous sponsor will be matching your gift dollar for dollar that will double your impact. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our work. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something as well. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I will gladly give you a shout out on the podcast, or you can designate an individual to receive all the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Federal Reserve originally had a limited role, and through successive crises, including the current COVID-19 crisis, the Fed has moved more directly into areas where it shouldn't be, according to Cato's Jim Dorn. As the economy recovers in 2021, what do those interventions mean? We spoke earlier this month. Jim, you're a critic of the Federal Reserve. Uh, I think that's fair to say. How did COVID-19 change the Federal Reserve's policies? Well, primarily, the Fed started to get into more credit allocation policies rather than pure monetary policy. It set up a number of facilities or programs for under its emergency lending authority, including a corporate credit facility, both a primary and secondary market facility, uh, Main Street lending facilities, uh, a number of other facilities, including a term asset-backed securities loan facility. And uh, these allowed the Fed for the first time ever to lend to corporations, also municipalities under the uh, special lending program for municipalities and states. So the Fed began to intrude more and more into the fiscal space uh, rather than just staying with pure monetary policy, which means uh, basically, they use monetary policy, achieve price level stability and uh, so-called full employment. So I guess what's wrong with that? At, at the most basic level, we expect a central bank to be engaged in monetary policy to uh, keep prices relatively stable. And in the case of the uh, U.S. central bank to try to maintain full employment, what's wrong with being involved in these other policy-making areas? Well, the Federal Reserve Act basically gave the Fed a very limited role, and uh, the emergency lending powers weren't introduced until the Depression, and they weren't Section 13.3, it's called, in the Federal Reserve Act, but that was hardly used during the Great Depression. It was first used, really, during the 2008 financial crisis, where they set up these special purpose vehicles or lending uh, vehicles to uh, provide liquidity to to the economy. But then it put it on supercharge during the pandemic, starting in March. And they added uh, a number of other facilities. Uh, I think there's 13 or so altogether now, uh, including the ones I just mentioned. What's wrong with that is basically that the Congress didn't intend the Fed to be providing fiscal support in terms of spending for the corporate sector or the municipal bond sector or to back uh, risky assets. Uh, 
it wanted the Fed basically to provide stability in the price level over the long run. And going into this new direction on fiscal policy, on spending, takes over from Congress their authority to appropriate monies. It's a precedent that's being set now so that the Fed's going to be asked to do things that Congress should be doing in the fiscal space, whether it's for the Green New Deal or uh, infrastructure spending or some other uh, project that the Congress wants to do, but they don't want to do it directly. They'd rather have the Fed do it. So I think it sets a dangerous precedent. It makes the Fed uh, joined at the hip with the Treasury, and that's not a good idea. And in addition, it politicizes the Fed. Instead of using the democratic process through Congress to appropriate money, it's doing it uh, through uh, an agency, uh, the central bank, uh, which was not basically set up to do that job in the first place. So the Fed loses independence, and I think the Fed loses credibility at the same time, and it politicizes things. If you look at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet over the past 12 years or so, you see a massive increase in uh, late 2008, and then you see a massive increase in, in March and April and May of 2020. And the, uh, the increase in the balance sheet this year, just eyeballing it, looks about twice the size of the increase in 2008. What does that mean? Well, things changed a lot in 2008 with the operating system that the Fed uses to conduct monetary policy. It used to let the market set interest rates and it would use federal funds market to set its own interest rate, the policy rate. But when it introduced unconventional monetary policy because of the 2008 financial crisis, it began to push interest rates administratively through the use of setting interest rates for the first time ever on excess reserves. This is called the interest on excess reserves. So the Federal Reserve now pays interest to uh, member banks on the reserves that they keep at the Fed. So what the Fed did is it engaged in large-scale asset programs called quantitative easing to buy government securities and mortgage-backed securities primarily and it did that because it wanted to lower long-term interest rates and it wanted to stimulate asset prices, bond prices, uh, stock market prices. And this was the so-called wealth effect that Bernanke wanted to create. I've called it a pseudo wealth effect because once interest rates normalize, then the asset prices should return to more realistic uh, levels dictated by market forces, not by Fed policy. So, in setting the interest on excess reserves, it allowed the Fed to have a very large balance sheet using quantitative easing or large-scale asset purchases and avoid inflation because they could simply increase the interest rate on excess reserves above the opportunity costs of using the funds elsewhere, and the banks would gladly hold the reserves at the Fed. And then that would not enter into the income stream through the typical monetary transmission mechanism whereby banks lend out the money to the private sector and they invest it and affects nominal income and so, so on. So you have a divorce between uh, the balance sheet, the size of the balance sheet and 
the stands of monetary policy under the unconventional system that we have now. And that allows the Fed to finance just about anything they want without inflation showing up. The, the problem with this, of course, is that it's not cost-free. It's not a free lunch like some maybe modern monetary theorists might say, because if they have to increase the interest on excess reserves that they pay to banks that keep the reserves there to prevent inflation, then they have less to remit to the treasury. So it's not exactly a free lunch, and it, it, it threatens to cause uh, inflation, and it also heavily misallocates funds away from the private sector, which they would have if uh, you had a more normal system. In the years uh, following the financial crisis, uh, people like you and, and others who, who follow monetary policy were very concerned about the size of the Fed's balance sheet, uh, hoping that the Fed's balance sheet could return to its pre-financial crisis levels. Uh, now, uh, in part due to the Fed's response to a pandemic, uh, the Fed's balance sheet has increased even more. Um, what hope is there uh, in, in the coming years to move it back? And, and do you think the people who actually operate the Federal Reserve are amenable to actually doing that? Well, in theory, they're amenable to it. Remember that COVID wasn't the Fed's fault and neither was the lockdown or lockdowns. And uh, the sh sharp downturn in the economy and the rapid decrease in the velocity of money, which means that people had a stronger demand for cash balances, basically, because of the uncertainties and so on, uh, led the Fed to want to expand its balance sheet and provide support for the economy. That, that's a typical uh, Federal Reserve role under the, under the present uh, legislation. However, I don't think anybody at the Fed at the beginning would ever realize that they might have a balance sheet that exceeded $7 trillion dollars as we're in the situation today. And they've said that Chairman Powell has said he wants to keep interest rates close to zero uh, for the next three years or so. And they're engaging in even more quantitative easing now, about $120 billion a month. And it, it, it's open-ended, basically. And then they use forward guidance to assure markets, particularly financial markets, that this is going to continue. And that's, I think, one of the major reasons that the stock market has performed so well, even though we have this pandemic and huge amounts of unemployment. So, yeah, they want to normalize in the long run, but the short run can last quite a, quite a time. Uh, we've had ultra low interest rates since 2008, quantitative easing, forward guidance, uh, and the balance sheet has been growing, but it's growing by leaps and bounds now. And with the huge government deficits, if the Fed decides to monetize those, which it's been doing, uh, we can see more balance sheet expansion over the next uh, couple of years. So the real question is, how do you exit that? And I think you have to exit it slowly, but there has to be some type of a strategy that's spelled out. And the Fed has really not spelled out a strategy. What we need is we need a rules-based monetary system, as John Taylor and other people have argued. So it reduces uncertainty and we don't get into this type of a situation. And we let Congress take over fiscal policy and do the spending, and the Fed should uh, be trying to basically normalize the growth of nominal GDP, which is what it really can do if it wants to do it. 
but it has to change its operating system to do so. So I think uh, we're going to see an enlarged balance sheet, and uh, it's going to be tough to get out of this. And of course, every time the financial markets take a downturn, the Fed comes in with its Fed put to reassure markets that everything will be okay. So I can't tell, you know, I, if I knew there was a, a bubble for sure when it was going to burst, I would make a lot of money. So I'm not going to make a prediction on that. But I think most most analysts do agree that uh, we have a disconnect between the reality of the actual economy and what's going on in the uh, the stock market. In terms of uh, inflation, uh, what do you expect to see as this pandemic hopefully abates sooner than later? Well, there's going to be pressure in the markets. Uh, you know, the demand for credit is going to increase. And uh, the markets, once they start reviving, the economy starts gearing up. There's going to be some pressure on prices, obviously. But inflation ultimately is a monetary phenomenon. And we certainly have more than enough uh, reserves as part of the monetary base to generate a lot of inflation if those reserves are lent out. Now, the interest rate on excess reserves now, I think, is only 10 basis points. It's very low. And uh, the reason that the bond markets have performed well and the stock market is because of the ultra-low interest rates. And we have real negative, the corporate rates now for the first time ever on 10-year corporates, investment-grade corporates, are now negative. And there's a lot of negative rates in, in, in Europe as well. So with these negative rates, uh, people are searching for yield and they're, they're going out and taking more and more risk. So eventually something has to give. Now, as far as inflation goes, well, you got two things. One thing, if interest rates start to increase, of course, it's going to be extremely expensive to maintain the deficits and finance those. And if, if the Fed is uh, going to do that, it's going to have to generate even more monetary, uh, more money in, in, and uh, reserves and so forth. If those reserves leak out into the system as the economy strengthens for the demand for loans and so forth, that could lead to upward pressure on prices. So we should normally see some price pressure as the economy revives. If, if the Fed the Fed's in a fix because if it does want to go to this old operating system, get rid of interest on excess reserves and reduce its balance sheet, it's going to have to sell securities and it's going to have to lower the interest on excess reserves, but it's already close to zero. So if they get rid of the interest on excess reserves, which I recommend that they do at some point, uh, they've got to go back to a smaller balance sheet and that, that's, that's going to take some time. So I would say that there is probability of increased inflation over the next five years or so. Certainly, uh, the Fed itself has said we want to maintain, we want to now target average inflation rather than simply two percent. So since we've been working below two percent for quite a while, it, it's it's okay to bring it up to above two percent to have a long run average of two percent. So the expectations are that. The Fed wants more inflation. They haven't been able to get it because of this operating system, in my opinion. Uh, so, as I said, they're in a, a quandary, and uh, I don't think they've thought things through enough, or at least they haven't revealed what their real strategy is, because <laughs> I don't think they have a real strategy without a, a, 
a strict monetary rule or some type of monetary rule to guide policy. Jim Dorn is Vice President for Monetary Studies at the Cato Institute. In this season of Giving, you can learn more about becoming a Cato podcast sponsor. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor.